15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson. This week, continued updates on the prosecution of those involved in the coup in Bolivia from 2019, the continued anti-government protests in Myanmar that have resulted in several deaths, ongoing fallout from the attempted coup in the United States on January 6th, and a see you in hell from Belgium in the 1940s. As I noted last week, the former president of Bolivia, Añez, uh, has been detained by the new government of Bolivia uh, in the wake of her participation in the 2019 coup that ousted then-president of Bolivia, Evo Morales. Uh, Añez and several of her other cabinet members have been detained uh, and charged with you know, various charges, uh, among them treason, um, sedition, uh, and also uh, crimes against the economy of the people of Bolivia, uh, anti-economic activity. Among those charged with anti-economic activity is the former chair of the Bolivian Central Bank, who is allegedly responsible for soliciting an illegal as an unconstitutional loan from the IMF, which the newly elected government of Bolivia, uh, run by the Mass Socialist Party, has returned to the IMF. Agnes and these other members of her government, you know, allege that their imprisonment is abusive, uh, that that they are not guilty of any of the charges that have been levied against them, that it is in fact mass that is behaving in an undemocratic way. Of course, it is Agnes and her allies who participated in a government that resulted from the military's demand that a sitting president resign uh, without any evidence of any kind of wrongdoing, without any of that evidence being substantiated. So, of course, they are wrong about this. Uh, they participated in a coup and are now facing the consequences. One has to note, however, that among those charged in the Agnes government, uh, none of them so far are military officials, the people actually arguably responsible for the, the coup part of the government transition. That, of course, is because it's extremely difficult and actually quite complicated and dangerous uh, to actually engage with the parts of the military that participate in coups, uh, especially if they've done so so recently and there hasn't been you know, any other kind of reduction in the military's power in the society. So one might imagine that the current president of Bolivia, Acre, is thinking about this in a strategic way. You know, he's going after the enemies that he can, the people who are no longer protected by military arms, and not going after the people who, you know, if he actually tried to go after them, might want to stage another coup. Uh, this is the sort of calculus that you have to make in the wake of any actually successful coup or, or even like a potentially successful one. It's a, it's a very sad logic to, to see a legitimate government have to go through. Speaking of successful military coups and military governments and, you know, what's actually possible in the wake of long-term military rule, there are continued anti-government protests in Myanmar that some recent news uh, out of Reuters is that the United States, the EU, and the United Kingdom have uh, finally imposed really serious economic sanctions against the military of Myanmar, which last month staged a military coup against the legitimate government of Aung San Suu Kyi. The military of Myanmar controlled that country for several decades in the late 20th century. And during the time of its rule, it, you know, it got its fingers in a bunch of other parts of society. Uh, namely, it controls large parts of a lot of production and distribution and just other commercial activity in the country. And so these sanctions are against these military controlled businesses. Uh, supposedly, they're not directed against the citizens of Myanmar, although, of course, some of those people who just work at companies that 
happen to be owned by the military are going to suffer in the wake of this. The military of Myanmar is cracking down on these protests, um, these anti-government protests. Recently, they've killed an additional nine people. Um, the problem here is that the United States, the EU, you know, the UK, that it's not like they're going to invade Myanmar in order to stop this kind of political violence. That would be that would be very much out of step with the way that the United States has engaged with these kinds of problems or these kinds of international activities recently. However, this means that, you know, it's a it's a sort of waiting game about how far this military government is willing to go in terms of political violence within the country, how far international actors are willing to go in terms of sanctions against that government, how much the people of Myanmar are going to bear the brunt of the you know, the actual force of these sanctions, uh, exactly what the consequences are going to be for these people. And of course, the military government's continued control of the economy of the country is evidence of the point that I was just making, that when a military government succeeds and really establishes itself in a country for a long, prolonged period of time, it's extremely hard uh, to get that control out of society, um, especially because you know, as evidenced again by the behavior of the government of Myanmar, by the behavior of the military there, those threats never really stop. You know, democracy was restored in Myanmar a couple decades ago, but everybody knew that the military could step in again at any moment uh, when they decided that it was in their interest to do so. And this is exactly the kind of problem that you can see, for example, the president of Bolivia facing, knowing that the military is there that it has done this kind of activity before, that it could do it again at any time. Now returning to the United States, where again, the ongoing fallout from the January 6th attempted coup uh, continues to result in the rounding up of various far right wing political actors uh, that had avoided prosecution up to this point. Recently, NPR has reported that four local or state leaders of the Proud Boys have been charged uh, for their role in preparing the January 6th coup. Uh, these four leaders include people from Philadelphia, from Washington State, and from Florida. Uh, the federal government seized text message records of theirs uh, that show exactly the, you know, the amount of planning that went into uh, the attempted coup on January 6th, you know, they're coordinating members of uh, Proud Boys from various states and regions coming to Washington, D.C. on this day for this rally. Uh, they're coordinating just like ways that they can communicate without getting the government involved. You know, like the, they're talking about like, OK, well, we need radios. We need various encrypted means of communication. They're specifically worried about federal surveillance uh, in a lot of these text messages especially in the wake of the arrest of the Proud Boys national leader, Enrique Tarrio, uh, when he arrived in D.C. on January 4th, right before the coup itself. In other news regarding prosecutions for participation in the coup, a judge has ordered the release of a person named Christian Secor. Uh, he's a UCLA student who did participate in the actual storming of the Capitol. He was actually physically present. Uh, and the judge has ordered his release pretrial. Uh, despite the fact that he was found, or rather his house when it was searched by federal authorities, uh, was found to contain military-style armor, uh, military-style batons, like the kind that you would use in a, in a riot, um, several knives, and also uh, what is called a ghost gun, uh, a gun that was manufactured uh, locally or by some unauthorized group, um, a gun that has no serial number uh, and is therefore untraceable, uh, a gun 
that if found by the federal authorities, you know, they wouldn't be able to find out who bought it and therefore trace it back to its owner. Uh, he claims that this gun isn't his. Uh, his mother, the only other person who lives in that building, also claims that it isn't hers. Uh, so clearly it belongs to one of them. Um, the fact is that these people, the people who participated in this coup are armed and violent people. Uh, a lot of them have been found with just like obscene amounts of ammunition and, you know, AR style rifles, all sorts of things that you would need if you were intended to participate in political violence, which is precisely what their plan clearly was uh, based upon the fact that, well, the, the, they committed a whole lot of political violence, both leading up to and on January 6th. And we know that they have plans to continue to do precisely that especially as the Biden administration or the federal government in general continues to crack down on this particular kind of political organizing. Another example of the federal government's relationship to this particular variety of political violence uh, concerns somebody who I mentioned in a previous episode of this podcast, Federico Klein, uh, known as Freddie. Um, Mr. Klein was a Trump aide in the 2016 campaign and later a State Department appointee to the Southern Cone and Brazilian office, and he later then worked in the Freedom of Information Act office of the State Department. He was charged with participation in the January 6th coup. Uh, this is pretty obvious. There's just like video of him punching windows and like handling police riot shields. Um, interestingly, um, it had been suggested previously, and now a uh, recent uh, reporting from uh, Vice Media has confirmed that he is actually personally related uh, to people who participated in the military government, the most recent military government in Argentina. His uncle, Guillermo Klein, uh, was an economic advisor. Uh, to this military government of Argentina, which is known as the Proceso. Uh, it's a very insidious, creepy name uh, for a military government. Uh, Klein, the, the, the uncle, the elder Klein, uh, was a sort of like uh, technocratic, administrative, neoliberal stalwart guy. You know, he, he thought that uh, neoliberalism and just like pure market economics was the only way forward for human civilization and that it was much more important uh, than democracy. And, you know, he, his opinion was that uh, no democratic government would be able to actually make the kinds of reforms uh, that were necessary. And so he participated in this military government in order to get those reforms to happen. Now, this man, Guillermo Klein, his brother, rather than staying in Argentina during the 1970s, moved to the United States, uh, where he was also a sort of like banking technocrat person, uh, and he had his son, Federico Freddy Klein, uh, in the United States. Klein was born as, as a United States citizen. Uh, so this is sort of a fall from grace uh, in, in, in terms of uh, the family's participation and involvement in the international right wing. Uh, back in Argentina, the Kleins are sort of like genteel, technocratic, upper class people. Uh, you know, they, they went to the best schools, they participated in very high levels of government, uh, whereas Freddie Klein in the United States is a sort of like bare knuckle thug fascist, uh, just literally punching people on screen. Uh, he's a low level aide that got a Trump appointment um, just, you know, to placate him for his, uh, his involvement in the campaign. Klein's co-workers at state and at other parts of the federal government that he interacted with noted, you know, they knew the whole time that he was an apologist for right-wing military dictatorships in South America and Argentina in particular, of course, because of his family's involvement. This is just like more and more mounting evidence 
that people who were involved in the entire Trump political apparatus were not just like aware of what they were doing in terms of courting extreme right wing support. They were doing it on purpose. Uh, there were people involved in the administration from the very beginning, from, you know, from back in 2015 when the campaign started, who have intimate personal knowledge of how to topple a democracy with right wing political movements, with right wing political organizing. We're just seeing more and more evidence of this tumble out. And I mean, like, I'm not saying that like this Freddie Klein person is some sort of like political puppeteer that, that he was an architect of Trump's political campaign. That person's name is Steve Bannon. Uh, what I'm saying instead is that the Trump administration pulled in these kinds of political actors who previously were very far on the outskirts of United States politics uh, and had been pushed there for many decades. Uh, but now in the wake of the Trump administration, they are in the mainstream. They have had government experience. A lot of them are still in government or deeply embedded in the Republican Party. And it is going to be extremely difficult if, if it's going to be possible at all to extricate them from those positions. And we're just going to have to be reckoning with that no matter who is the president, no matter what happens to the GOP for decades to come. This week's See You in Hell, a segment that celebrates the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in world history, is actually reaching forward into next week. There, there are a lot of really important figures who died next week, so I'm featuring one of them this week. Uh, his name is Leon de Grel. Uh, he was a Belgian fascist uh, back in the 1930s. He was a journalist for uh, several Catholic conservative publications. Uh, specifically, uh, he covered Mexico. Uh, for these Catholic conservative publications uh, up until 1934. Specifically, he worked as a correspondent in and for the Mexican region, uh, where he did actually specifically comment pretty extensively on the Cristero War, uh, a conflict that pitted Catholic conservatives, mainly rural residents and peasants, uh, against an increasingly radical or radical at the time Mexican government that was, you know, was going through a sort of like radical social democratic phase. In any case, uh, after his work as a journalist, he was part of the Catholic Party in Belgium, uh, but then split uh, along with others uh, to create a clerical fascist party called the Rexist Party. Uh, now, clerical fascism is a concept that's, you know, part of how we talk about a lot of fascist movements from the 1930s and 1940s. Specifically, it's a fascism that comes from a place of extremely conservative Catholicism uh, that, you know, it unites a kind of conservative concept of social justice, uh, some anti-capitalism, but also staunch anti-Bolshevism with, you know, a belief in a strong state and strong leaders. Um, there are direct connections between the Rexists and the Spanish Falange and the Romanian Iron Guard. Uh, these are other examples of, you know, what have been called clerical fascisms. And by connections, I don't just mean like ideologically, like, like that they were influenced by each other or that they were influenced by the same uh, religious sources, although they were. I mean, like literally de Grel met with the leaders of these parties as he was founding the Rexist party. Interestingly, uh, what separates the Rexists from other Belgian fascist movements at the time of course, there were several Belgian fascist movements at the time. The Rexists uh, are distinct among them for being a Unitarian fascist movement. Uh, you know, they weren't for the Flanders or Wallon part of Belgium. They, they, they believed in Belgian unity. Uh, after Germany invaded Belgium, uh, 
De Grel fled to France, uh, where he was imprisoned, but then he was released after France fell to Germany. Uh, he then returned to Belgium, but, but only stayed there for a short period of time because he then joined the German army, the Wehrmacht, and uh, later the SS uh, as part of a Wallon uh, volunteer brigade. Now, a lot of fascists from Western Europe, uh, so we're talking France, Belgium, other parts of Europe, uh, joined similar brigades, uh, volunteer fascists who went to go fight the Soviets on the Eastern Front. Um, despite having no military experience prior to World War II, uh, de Grel proved to be actually a very competent military leader and soldier. Uh, he became an extremely decorated and successful officer, uh, rising pretty high into the ranks. Um, after the war ended, uh, after the, the Germans uh, capitulated to the Soviets, he escaped Soviet capture, where he Possibly, very possibly would have been killed, um, and actually made it his way to Norway, uh, where he commandeered a plane, supposedly with the aid of um, Speer, uh, one of the more prominent uh, German technocrats during the fascist government. So he commandeered this plane and flew all the way to uh, Franco's Spain, uh, where he crash landed and had to live in the hospital for a year as he was recovering. After his recovery, he spent the rest of his life, or the rest of the Franco regime, living actually a very comfortable life uh, as a sort of uh, pet of the Franco government. You know, he would go to uh, various party functions wearing his Wehrmacht uniform, wearing his SS uniform with all of his German decorations, and talk about, you know, the good old days uh, when fascists were in charge and when they almost took over the world. Uh, he was handed several plum positions by the fascist government of Spain. Uh, and then after the fall of the fascist regime in Spain, he continued to live out his life again as a writer, uh, this time uh, as a Holocaust denier. Uh, and he also claims uh, to be the inspiration for the Tintin comic books. Uh, you know, you can't make this shit up. Uh, fascists are just weird people who were deeply embedded in all parts of European society back in the 30s and 40s. In any case, uh, de Grel made it out. He was never prosecuted very successfully, uh, although there were some uh, Holocaust denial prosecutions in Spain. Um, but he was never prosecuted for his participation in war crimes or for uh, his involvement in the SS. Uh, and he died of cardiac arrest March 31st, 1994 in Malaga in Spain. Uh, so, uh, Leon de Grel, we will see you in hell. Right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. And if you like this podcast, if you think it was helpful, please share it with friends, family, and comrades. And if you really like the podcast, uh, then please help me defray the cost of hosting it on the internet uh, by uh, contributing at my Patreon. That's patreon.com slash 15 Minutes of Fascism, all one word. I'll talk to you next week.